from the Willamette Valley in America's great Pacific Northwest. You are listening to the Ernest Mann Show, and I'm your host, Ernest Mann. No matter where you may be listening in this great, big, beautiful world, we all share. As always, folks, thank you for tuning in or for tuning in again. This is episode number 141, Thoughts on the Death of Sam Smead and Christine McVeigh of Fleetwood Mac. Before I go into discussing Miss McVeigh, I would really like to, first of all, um, start this off with talking about um, Sam Smead. Because this is uh, definitely interesting and uh, it's something you should know. Sam Smead, amongst other things, he was a Midwestern farmer's son. And he, uh, as a very young kid, he grew up during the Depression and eventually, after they lost the farm, he, uh, being the oldest son, he had to get employment to support his family. So, um, he decided that uh, perhaps he would be good at being a, uh, a shoesmith, a cobbler. And it just so happened that there were a lot of opportunities in the city that was close to him. And so that was his choice. That is what he set off to do. And he got a job as an apprentice. And he, uh, he learned the trade. And he was very good at the trade. And he... Uh, well, he decided that uh, this was um, going to be his calling in life, so he decided to, uh, only after a short apprenticeship, to open up his own shop, which he did, and uh, proceeded to, uh, well, go into business for himself. And he was doing, he was doing pretty well. And then the depression struck. And unfortunately, despite his best efforts, he quickly discovered that um, not only did um, people no longer have the money to buy new shoes, they couldn't even afford to have their shoes repaired. So he lost the business. And he was, that was not unusual for so many people of his age and stage in life. And for a time, he, uh, he simply mucked around doing, uh, you know, short jobs. Anything basically he could 
do to try to make some money to support his family. And that was like millions and millions of other men of that time. There simply was no work. He didn't have the business anymore. And he certainly didn't have a wealthy family to support him or to help support the business. So that was all history. And uh, he sort of uh, ended up drifting and meandering around because, well, like a lot of men, again, of that time, there simply wasn't any work. And despite his best efforts, well, it simply wasn't there. But then, <clears throat> relatively speaking, a miracle occurred. It was the Second World War. And he was still pretty young. And his immediate impulse, like so many other men of that time, was to simply join up for the service. But he didn't qualify for the service. He was physically disqualified for some reason. However, because there was a war on, all of a the sudden there was a great need for workers in defense plants and the defense industry. And so, he took a job in the defense industry. And he was very good at what he did. As a matter of fact, he uh, was absolutely determined to go as far as his skills and knowledge would take him to, you know, have a life. Of course, to help support his family and basically try to do the right thing. So that's basically what he did. And he branched out immediately after the end of the war. And once again, he uh, got his own business going. And this time it was in an entirely different field, but for completely different reasons uh, that didn't work out either. But fortunately for him, he didn't lollygag. Uh, there was post-war America. There were plenty of jobs. And he, uh, for a while, he worked for a defense contractor. And in between that time, he uh, met a woman and fell in love and they got married and they had three children. Now, he was more concerned with security more than anything else because, well, that should be for obvious reasons. And then he got a job at a meatpacking plant. Once again, he was really good at what he did. And he did that for several years. But 
at some point, he decided that he'd had enough of being a uh, corporate uh, butcher, and he wanted he wanted something different. And so he traded that position, and he applied to work for the uh, United States Postal Service. And of course, uh, he started working at a much lower position uh, as a mail carrier and um, a much uh, longer story short, that's what he did for the rest of his life. He worked in the uh, postal service industry. Uh, he worked for several years as a mail carrier and at some point he got a job working for the United States Postal Service internally. So he wasn't actually a mail man. He wasn't actually, you know, delivering the mail anymore. But be that as it may, all this time, um, bear in mind by now this would have been the mid to later 50s. Um, he was nonetheless, because of his willingness to work and his constant employment, he was able to keep his family um, housed and fed. And he was the primary bread earner. And, um, and everyone in his family, everybody loved him. He's a really easygoing guy and a soft-spoken, um, just, just, a, just a generally decent guy. Everybody liked him. His neighbors liked him. And certainly, his family loved him. And what more can you expect of a person to do in their life, especially when they take into account the fate or the hand that life had dealt them. Because that's exactly what he did. He had a very realistic point of view about his life. It wasn't as though past uh, a certain point in his life and he said well I'm I'm gonna I'm going to be a pitcher for a major league baseball team or what have you he wasn't scatterbrained he wasn't all over the place he just looked at a very practical utilitarian assessment but an honest assessment of his own abilities and how could he use this not only to support himself, but his family. And the thing is, is that um, Sam Smead is representative of tens of millions of Americans who basically did the same thing. There was nothing special about what he did. He just 
saw the situation for what it was, and that's what he did. But at the end of the day, when he died, uh, approximately uh, two days ago, um, everybody who was in attendance, family, friends, they spoke very highly of him because he did the very best that he could in his life at all times. Now, of course, I'm not saying he was perfect and I didn't know him. But the point is, is that he is rather emblematic. He is one that can be seen as pretty much the standard of what people did and the mindset that they had of that generation. You didn't bitch. You didn't complain. You didn't talk about how life was unfair. You just looked at the situation and you said, okay, this is what I have to do. And I believe there's really something very special to be said for that because it represents so many people. And in the bigger picture of things, I believe that collectively speaking, that's what you and I and the vast majority of people out there, that's what we need to be doing, and that's what we should be doing. So, as far as that's concerned, all I can say is rest in peace and hats off to Sam Smead. So, now if I may, I would like to move on to um, a different person here. And this is someone who is very well known. And of course, I'm talking about Christine McVeigh or McVee. And uh, primarily known from her uh, involvement in the band of Fleetwood Mac. Now, for me, the curious thing here is that when a person who is this well-known uh, dies, every time one of them does, and they are, let's say, affiliated or closely representative of your generation, um, you you feel a specialness of their of their death. You you feel a pain, and there have been I don't know in the last three four years so many performers, music and otherwise of 
what I'll call our generation, the boomer generation that have passed, that you get the feeling when you are one of us that we, not only as time moves on, not only do we collectively lose slowly but surely our relevance, but just any knowledge and remembrance. And those things are important. On the other hand, I wanted to say this. As far as Miss McVeigh is concerned, there is a marked difference between her and Sam Smead. Their age, well, they weren't that far apart. I mean, she made it to the age of 79. I think he was around 85. That's, that's not a huge difference. But the main difference here that I would like to point out is that for many of you, unless you're very young, um, you will know who Christine McVeigh of Fleetwood Mac was, and you didn't have an idea. You didn't know a doodly damn about Sam Smead. Now, having said that, I wanted to point out that any resemblance to a person actually living or deceased of Sam Smead is completely coincidental because I completely made it up. However, I know that there are countless thousands of people just like that fictional character that I made up. They may not fit everything that I said perfectly, but my point is, is that they are representative and they fit a lot of those criteria very closely. And they were good, decent, loving, caring human beings. Yet you don't know who the hell they are. Yet we do know who the hell Christine McVie is of Fleetwood Mac. I am not here to in any way criticize the life or career of Miss McVeigh. On a personal note, I'll say that um, as an album of its time, it was the Rumors album in particular, was what you might call the perfect album. 
or at least as close as the perfect album can get. And that represented from a musical and a humanistic point of view. A hell of a lot, actually. It was a testament to everything that they had that had accumulated in their lives interpersonally up to that point. There were marriages that failed. There were relationships that failed. There was cheating. There was, there was just so much. And I believe, personally, that's why the record was such a masterpiece and want, I don't know, how many times it want multi-platinum and gold and whatnot, you know, umpteen millions of copies sold. But it, res it resonated because it was real. It was real. And people know that. And this was one of, well, the most real times, as real as you can get, for up until that time was a, you know, a struggling group of talented musicians that were basically putting everything on the line. And they put, quite literally, blood, sweat, and tears into this. And it, they lucked out, and it resonated with listeners, and there you go. That's the result. And they deserve, and she deserved, and all of the surviving members of that band deserve everything that they have received from it. But... Bearing that in mind, there is a certain problem which I feel is endemic within the industry that I wanted you to be aware of. And that is that despite all of these achievements, despite their abilities, she was a, a fantastic singer, performer songwriter, no qualms there, hands down. She had it in spades. But yet, still human, still full of human errors, and just like all of us. In other words, you know, her shit also stank. But what happens in recent years that I've noticed when I talked to you about when I just mentioned about all of these people, particularly again of a boomer generation, as one by one, regrettably, they pass, is what takes effect, what happens is a deification. And that is the problem. That is the problem as far as I'm concerned because, and this was the reason I gave the prior example of the fictional person of Sam Smead, was that 
there are so many of us just in our lives that with our abilities, what we whatever it is we're given from the beginning, we do the best that we can with what we're given. Some of us have exceptional talent. Most of us don't. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with a person who is leading what you might call an average life simply because of the abilities that they have. The problem comes with people who become deified. Now, I could touch on this for a moment. I am in no way whatsoever meaning to denigrate the accomplishments of Miss McVeigh. But the fact is, despite all of that, um, she was no Mozart. Mozart is considered at least, well, pretty much, I believe, universally as one of the greatest music composers to date ever, period, hands down. Yet, without virtually any fanfare in his time, despite all this, he died terribly, unceremoniously, and also unceremoniously was buried in a pulper's grave. Now, granted, they didn't obviously have those centuries ago. They didn't have all the techno-everything that we have today. Perhaps, who knows? Things might have been different. Who knows? But again, that's speculation. But what I do know was that he was an absolute genius. He was absolutely brilliant. And yet, he died a pulper and was buried in a pulper's grave. We have this tendency today, what I'm talking about here, is to deify, to make godlike performers, entertainers, for example, who actually, and I'm not, I'm not saying this about Miss McVeigh. I'm just saying that there are perhaps lesser-known entertainers, but again. There is this collective effort of putting them to uh, on a pedestal to a godlike status. I mean, as a personal example, I thought that David Bowie was very talented. I really liked his music. I didn't like all of his music, and of course, 
over the decades, he went through various changes because, well, as you probably know, uh, all of us over time, we all go through changes. <laughs> no pun there for his famous song about that. But one thing he certainly would not have appreciated is this whole process of deification. There is a certain dignity in not being deified, glorified. And you know what? Generally speaking, and they've they already started this, they're well underway into this process with Bowie. And no doubt the corporate criminals will do this with her material as well. Then there'll be countless what I call cashing in sessions. Christine McVeigh, Fleetwood Mac, a retrospective. Christine McVeigh, da 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 da, Fleetwood Mac, a original recordings, studio outtakes, and every one of them is some sort of boxed set or something specialized, and it's the whole cashing in. And that's sad. I think it's ultimately disrespectful and and sad because it doesn't allow us and when i say us of course i i am referring to not just myself but people of let's say my generation it takes away the specialness of them the more that this happens the more it cheapens them. I mean, granted, it's been a number of years, many years, since Freddie Mercury of Queen died of AIDS. And then, just recently, it's, I think it's still going on, I see the little adverts on TV for a cruise line, maybe, maybe yourself, maybe you've seen them. And they're just small sound bites, but you know, apparently they are able to use them either with permission or without. I don't know. But a cruise line that is using, you know, Freddie Mercury and Queen's material for I Want to Break Free for a cruise ad for a cruise pitch it cheapens them it dishonors them it breaks them down you may notice for instance that um these things these kind of pitches as an example even though this goes back many years before Freddie Mercury. I have heard pitches, for instance, again, with whatever deal, quote-unquote, was arranged. I have heard pitches with Janis Joplin. But you never hear one with Jimi Hendrix. And that is because 
having read a bit about this, that the uh, remaining um, family members, those who are in control of the estate and whatnot, no matter what they are offered from these corporate criminals, these creatures, these Shylocks, uh, they absolutely refuse to capitulate and they say flatly, no. No, you may not in any way, shape, or form use his music or his likeness in any way. Now that not only is respectful, but like I said, there is a there is a feeling that you know that the people who are involved sincerely respect and care about them. And I I don't know, I have no control over, I don't know um, what is, uh, as far as that's concerned, what, you know, what the future lies for her material. I don't know. But I do know this. I know that at least generationally speaking, when I hear my, the heroes, let's say, <laughs> the heroes of my youth, the music that I loved and the people that I identified with, and, you know, let's face it, when you're, uh, especially when you're young, I mean, you incorporate, you identify with certain performers when you're young on a deep level and that stays with you for a very long time they are like family members and you don't want them disrespected or denigrated in any way so all i'm trying to say here is the deification needs to stop because the problem is, is that when you have, when you accept that level of deification, you accept the marketing, the degradation that comes with it. And I believe that these performers, especially those that we know were extremely talented and very, basically very decent, lovable, good human beings that we don't want to see them disrespected and turned into a, a fucking marketing commodity. I can't say with certainty, but for instance, and I don't know, of course, I do not know every detail of the marketing and, and how it worked out of the estate of this performer or that performer. However, in at least my opinion, I believe that if Freddie Mercury were alive, knowing that even any clip 
or part of, of, of a song that he obviously put so much of his emotion, love, passion, blood, sweat, and fucking tears into and is being used as a pitch or part of a pitch for a cruise line. I know this sounds old, but yeah, he'd be turning in his grave, in my opinion. What's your opinion? What do you think? That's what I think. I'd like to hear what you think. So please, drop me a line. Tell me what you think. It's a very sad passing. Of course, I'm, I'm very sad that she is gone. Of course, in no way, shape, or form did I know her, had never met her. But from every indication, she was a good, decent human being. It's just important to understand that regardless, you can be the best person in the world, yet we all shit and it all stinks. And I believe that any artist who's worth their weight in salt truly has enough introspection to understand this and agree with that. Wherever she may be, I hope she's in peace. <laughs>